Well, thanks for the uh, the warm invitation and uh, the warm welcome that I've uh, received from some of you already this morning. Um, some of you guys might remember that I've actually visited here uh, about a month ago um, with a couple of uh, with a couple of friends, and so it's good to come back and see some familiar faces here um, again. But um, I been really interested in visiting the church since I got back from Korea recently. Um, as It's hard to believe that I've known Michael for, um, well, his entire adult life. Uh, and, uh, and that, you know, believe it or not, Pastor Michael was a college student at one point. And, and so uh, we go back a long way, probably over, over a decade. And, and, uh, and yet we've maintained uh, contact and uh, um, we've kept in touch over the last, you know, 10 plus years through life changes when he went to seminary and then off to Boston then here. And when he arrived here, I, I took off to Korea um, because I felt the Paduan was ready to, to be on his own. Um, uh, but uh, as I was in Korea for the last two years, I would get email updates on, on what was going on in his life and also here at, at this church. And so um, I've been kind of... Uh, kind of uh, reading regular email updates, hearing about what uh, you guys have been through. And so I find it, um, it, it's a great pleasure, actually, and it came as a surprise to find out that today is your, your actually your, your first year anniversary. Um, and so it's kind of, it's a nice touch for me to be able to be here and celebrate that with you after all that I've heard about about uh, your church and after um, having known Michael for so long. So, um so it's, uh, I, I feel like, you know, um, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. I kind of feel like, I don't know, a friend of the family, a cousin or something like that is coming by to, to, to visit and hang out on a special occasion. Um, but today we'll be looking at uh, Matthew's, uh, Matthew's Gospel, the 20th chapter. And uh, this scene is, you know, chronologically based on, on what you've been going through leading up to Easter. Um, we're taking a step back a little bit from... Um, we're moving back in time uh, relative to uh, uh, Jesus' death and then his following resurrection. But I did want to look at this passage because I think it does illuminate for us um, some of the implications of the things that we've been focusing on for the last month as the church, not just here, but the church, the church universal, um, the uh, church throughout the world who have been... Um, thinking about what it means for us to live in the light of who Jesus was and what he did and his resurrection. And so, um, and so I think this passage helps us to do that. And so for that reason, I did want to go back and look at these verses. So um, please read along with me as we look at today's scripture. <coughs> uh, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus uh, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Um, and he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Uh, they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those 
for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Uh, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the Word of God. Now, I love this opening scene from this uh, story, this this episode in Jesus' life. Because you can totally imagine this, this situation. James and John um, are two of the more prominent of Jesus' 12 disciples. And <clears throat> their mother is, uh, I like to think that she's sincere, but perhaps a little overly involved in her son's life. Uh, perhaps a little overly ambitious. And... Uh, And so she comes to Jesus and she asks Jesus for a special favor. Um, You know, my boys, um, they're really good boys. And they're pretty smart too. Um, And what, they've been with you for two, three years now? And I'm sure by now that you've seen their competence, their loyalty, um, so, you know, once you do what you're going to do, and you set up your, your new kingdom, your, your new administration, um, you know, just, just remember, remember my boys. Um, maybe you could ask one to be your vice president, and another one could be your chief of staff. You know, so that's not too much to ask um, after all that they've shown you. And so I hear this story, and I think, well... Wow, sounds like my mom. <laughs> sounds like one of your mom. Maybe like a, like, a, like a tiger mom that we've all heard about in the last couple of months. Um, <clears throat> and you can Google that if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and I love, the, I love this story because it sounds so authentic. And it sounds so real, at least to, to my experience. But, but I, I love the honesty of the Bible, too, because... Um, when, when I see a story like this included in the Bible, that, that's frankly pretty embarrassing to the disciples to see the infighting and the squabbling and the jockeying for position and to see their mothers get involved in this way. Um, I don't know. For me, it adds an air of, an air of authenticity to the Bible. Uh, the fact that they chose to include a story like this um, that isn't terribly flattering to anyone involved in the story except for, for perhaps Jesus. Um, and so you have this, this, this mother asking for a special favor from Jesus, and, and Jesus responds by, you know, by challenging them and saying, well, you want this, this position of, uh, this, this prestigious position in my, in my kingdom, in my administration, but are you up for it? Are you ready to to follow me and, and do what I'm about to do. 
And they, I mean, they have no idea. And we know that this is the case if you're familiar with the, the story. Um, but they say, oh, yeah, for sure, definitely, we'll be there. Um, and Jesus, instead of blasting them now, he just says, well, it's, it's not up to me. You know, it's not, up, it's not my call. Um, it's up to the Father who is uh, prepared, um, who, is, who he's prepared for, for these positions of, of prestige. And, and so, uh, you know, if you think about it, the story could have ended here. Could have ended here because, uh, you know, these disciples and their mother was asking, were asking for a special favor. Jesus replies to them, well, it's not up to me. These are things that you have to entrust into God's hands. There's a lesson there already. So the story could have ended there, but fortunately it doesn't, because the story gets better. Um, you have the other ten disciples who find out about what John and James, what John and James and their mother have asked of Jesus, um, and the story gets really interesting from here. I mean, they're outraged by this. I mean, they're probably thinking the same thing. But these guys have the audacity to actually ask Jesus for this special favor. And so they're offended by all of this. And so there the disciples are squabbling with each other about, <coughs> about this special favor that, that um, these two have asked for. And we don't know how they found out um, or who told them. And that usually happens when a story about you comes back to you and you're like, hey, how did you hear that? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's just out there. And I guess somehow, some way, um, this story got out. Um, but, but what's so great about this story is that it, get, it, it presents Jesus with this, this teachable moment where in the life of the disciples, there's, um, in this episode, in this situation, uh, it forces them to really evaluate, really evaluate their lives really evaluate their priorities and, and really challenge them, challenges them to, to, to see if their perspective is aligned with Jesus' perspective. And so what Jesus does is he describes two different, two different kingdoms, two different worlds. Um, I would say two different universes with two different sets of laws governing those two universes. And so first he describes the kingdom of of this world, which is ruled by power and by position, ruled by force and often by fear. In this universe, your goal is to get to the top. Because from the top, you can push people around. From the top, um, you get your way. And so you need to climb over each other. You need to pull each other, pull others down if anyone's up ahead of you. Um, And you got to do whatever you can to get to the top. Um, That's how this universe uh, works. That's how this universe operates. Now, <clears throat> when we hear that, you know, it's easy for us to see that. We don't have to look too far to see those kinds of dynamics at work. But 
Then we say, well, that's not me. I don't do that. Um, but we all do. We're just a lot more subtle about it. I mean, if you think about uh, Survivor. Now, I'm not a big, huge, like, Survivor fanatic. Uh, probably some of you are now. And how many seasons are they up to? Are they, like, in the double digits? Yeah. And they have, like, two seasons per year sometimes. I can't keep track, all right? Um, but it was quite the phenomena when it started. Were you in college when it first? I think, okay, it's been a while. Okay, wow. Yeah, we're like coming close to triple digit. Okay, season 22. Um, so I don't really watch it that much. So, I mean, I could get some of the details wrong and stuff like that. But um, when you look at the people who actually rise to the top and end up winning, is it the cutthroat jerk? who's openly ambitious and trying to climb on top of each other and manipulate others, it usually isn't. It usually isn't the guy who's just too easy to read. Um, but it's the cutthroat jerk who does it with a smile. You know, the guy who is likable and the guy who knows how to, to work his charm and actually may, may actually be, you know, actually not a total jerk, but actually cares about the people that he's interacting with. But at the same time, he wants to win. Um, but what we see is that we can even disguise that drive and that ambition. And we realize that we actually have to, in some measures, disguise what's actually really going on. It's really motivating us inside. So that's one universe. And Jesus says, that's, that's one universe. But, but there's actually another universe that exists. Um, it's a parallel universe. Um, some of you guys might not be old enough to remember um, this reference, but in the old Superman comics um, and, and uh, cartoons, there was Superman's, his opposite, right? What was his name? Bizarro. Very good. <laughs> Dude, who knows who Bizarro is? Oh my goodness, we have like two people who know who Bizarro is? I mean, I'm not even a huge comic book fan and I know who Bizarro is. Bizarro is Superman's opposite. Superman is good, Bizarro is, well, there's an opposite universe and he's evil. Um, Superman, when he shows up, he says hello, and when he leaves, he says goodbye. Bizarro, when he shows up, he says goodbye, and when he leaves, he says hello. So he does everything, that's, and there was actually a Seinfeld episode. If you guys, you guys are old enough to have watched that, there's a Seinfeld episode where there's a bizarro world that they play with. They play with that whole notion of, of opposites, um, opposite characters. Well, there's a bizarro alternate parallel universe um, that Jesus describes that operates on the total opposite laws and rules of the first universe. So instead of stepping on each other, we push each other up. Instead of <clears throat> being exclusively concerned about our own needs and expecting others to do the same for us, we tend to others' needs. We put a priority on others' needs over our own. It's the exact opposite of the, the, the first world. Instead of drawing attention to ourselves, we love to shower other people 
with attention and credit for the things that they've done. It's the opposite. So in the first universe, gravity pulls down. But in the second alternate universe, gravity pulls up. And these are the two worlds we have to choose from. These are the two worlds that Jesus is describing. Now, which one would you rather live in? In a world where you've got 50 people in a room, and each one of those 50 people is only and exclusively focused on themselves and their own benefit, and their own prestige, and their own <clears throat> position and power? And, or, or would it be better to be in a room of 50 people where instead of each person has only one person focused on them, a room of 50 people where 49 other people are, are focused on you, where everyone's focused outwards, so that everyone's, instead of saying, I've got to take care of myself, you have 49 other people who are looking after you. I mean, which world do you want to live in? And so, I think there are two natural responses to this idea and to Jesus' teaching here. Um, the first one is, wow, this is the most brilliant, ingenious idea I've ever heard. Wow. Wow. Or, another response is, wow, this is the most naive, absurd, and ludicrous idea I've ever heard. Because if you do this, if you actually act the way that Jesus acts, well, people are going to end up just stepping on you, climbing on top of you, abusing you, exploiting you. That's what actually happens when you decide to serve others instead of climbing to the top. Right? I think these are both reasonable responses. Maybe, you know, it represents where most of you guys are. I'm not sure where you guys fall, but I think maybe both, all of us feel both of these responses. Wow, this is a great idea, something I wish were a reality. And on the other hand, well, but come on. Come on. Can we really live like this? Um, and so I think this is a reasonable and understandable response. But when, when we step back and, and think about this, not just as a teaching about being nice people, a teaching about being good to each other. But when we see this as Christians, when we see this passage in light of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we see this in a completely different way. This is what we've been focusing on and building up to for the last month heading into Easter, is thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done, and what that means, what his life, death, and resurrection means for me. And when we remember that we believe that there is, that God, 
became a man, were a king, <clears throat> became a carpenter. When the master became a servant, not just a servant, but one who died um, a criminal's death. When we put it into that perspective, then things change. And we got to ask, why did Jesus do this? Why did, why did Jesus choose this way? He chose this to rescue me, to rescue us from our sin and its consequences. He did this to restore my relationship with God and with with my brothers and my sisters. Now, when you discover what Jesus has done and realize that, that he has done the same thing for us, that he himself is not just saying, oh, you should become um, a slave rather than pursuing um, the highest position. You should become a servant. Jesus says, this is what I did. This is what I've done. Um, and go do the same. We, we see that, that it puts a different spin on this teaching. And so for, for God to die for us is either the most brilliant, ingenious idea ever known, or it's the most naive and ludicrous and absurd idea that we've ever heard. And so you see how, how Jesus changes everything and how we read this story. When Jesus came, he didn't establish his power, his, his kingdom, his universe based on power and position and force and fear. But rather he established his kingdom on love and compassion and sacrificial service. And so when you realize that this is exactly what Jesus has done for you, then it creates the plausibility. It creates the plausibility and it gives us motivation to live this way also. <clears throat> but is it really? Is it really possible to live this way? Is it really possible? Not in the world of the sermon. Not in our Bible study discussions, but out there, tomorrow morning. Um, <clears throat> can we really live like this? And as I thought about this sermon and I wrestled with it, and <clears throat> excuse me, that's one thing that hasn't changed for people who know me is my throat clearing. It's been something I've had since, I don't know, since, since college, I think. Um, anyway, um, as I thought about this, I, I remembered a, a movie that I thought illustrated this battle between <laughs> this battle between um, these two universes and the conflict and how we, we want to live one way and we feel pulled in another way. 
And, and the name of the movie is called Millions. Has anyone, no one's heard of Bizarro, but has anyone heard of Millions, the movie Millions? All right, we got, we got one. We just got, it wasn't a huge movie. It was kind of a small independent film, but it wasn't wide release. And it was actually um, written and directed by the same guy. Well, the screenplay was adapted and, and the story was direct, the, the movie was directed by the same guy who did um, Slumdog Millionaire. Danny Boyle, a British, uh, British uh, director. And so this was the movie that came, um, that came a few years before Slumdog Million. He's got this thing with the word million. His next movie is going to have the word million in there somewhere. Um, he's got a thing for numbers. He, he directed 28 Days Later, right? Um, so, uh, so, but Millions, in my opinion, is actually, I actually liked it better than Slumdog, as much as great of a movie and heartwarming as it was, I actually thought Millions was, was a better movie. So I encourage all of you to see it if you, if you actually haven't seen it yet. Um, <clears throat> but the story focuses on um, a family, a young family. Um, there are two young boys. Uh, the f- focus of the story is on the younger of the two boys, nine-year-old Damien. He's got an older brother who's probably in middle school, maybe about three or four years older. And then um, uh, the father... Uh, their mother passed away a few years earlier. And so it's the father and the, the two boys. And Damien is the focus of the nine-year-old Damien. And, and you should watch the movie just to see him in action because um, he's, he's quite uh, um, cute. And, uh, but also a uh, remarkable job of, of acting for his age and, and so believable. Um, but he, he's an idealistic type. Um, uh, but he's this nine-year-old boy who has a very special gift. And that gift is that he can see dead saints. He's, he's Catholic, but he sees these dead saints. And he sees them, and he's not freaked out by this apparition. Rather, he has these conversations with dead saints. And these are obscure saints that I don't know of. Um, but it's like he, he sees them, he knows their name, he can rattle off like the year they were born and what they're known for and what, what miracle they performed that got them canonized. I mean, it's like he's a kid who's memorized all the baseball cards, you know, and all the stats. And so with, he does that with, with all the saints. And so <clears throat> he has visions of these saints, has conversations um, with them. And he's a very, but he's a very spiritual boy. And... Uh, and so what happens, one day he's an imaginative, and one day he's playing in his backyard, and, <clears throat> and there's a big field behind his backyard, and, and all of a sudden um, he discovers a, a large black, like industrial strength-sized um, and sized uh, duffel bag. And he opens a duffel bag, and he opens it up, and <clears throat> inside it's completely full of stacks of British pounds. And um, so he finds all this, this money and he doesn't know where it came from. But he believes that God gave him this money. And it's in the millions of dollars. We don't know exactly how much it is. They spent some time counting it up and I forget the exact amount. But it's a lot of money. And... Um, and he believes that God gave him the money uh, so that he could give to the poor. And, that's, and so he thinks he's got this mission. So this nine-year-old boy goes around asking people, are you poor? 
Are you poor? So he can give them money. And so he, he knows there's some Mormon missionaries who live in his neighborhood. And they look pretty poor, and they're on these beat-up bicycles, and they talk about the importance of living kind of a, a simple, frugal life. And so he slips money into their mailbox. Um, and they go out and buy, like, CD players and things like that. Um, he goes to the pet store and buys the, you know, cage full of yellow parakeets. And he brings them out and he sets them free to be eaten by the cats in the neighborhood. I don't know. I don't know what he's thinking. Parakeets are not found in the wild, I don't think. So, so probably release them to their death. Um, uh, and, and at his school, there's actually a collection at one point um, that's taken up by an NGO that uh, supports um, well pro- well, water well projects in Africa, where the money goes to digging wells in villages so that um, resources can be spared from carrying water, and, and also they can have access to clean water um, in, parts in, in poor parts of rural Africa. And so he drops a thousand pound wad into the collection bin. And, uh, and the thousand pounds is like $1,800 or something like that. I don't know what, what the exchange rate, but it's just a lot of money. And, and so that raises suspicions, and, and you'll have to watch the movie to, to get the rest of it. But he does all of this because he believes God gave him the money to help the poor. Then you have Anthony. Anthony is Damien's older brother. He's three or four years older. Anthony has very different ideas about how the money should be spent. He's much more practical. And so he um, lets it known, lets it be known amongst his friends that he's come into a small fortune and he gathers a little entourage. They're wearing their sunglasses. He buys them all new bikes so they can escort him around. Um, So he's got his crew um, then he, he looks into investing in real estate. Because one of the things you find out, it's kind of a fictional backstory, is that the Brits are finally changing over from the pound to the euro. And so the pound, they need to, they need to spend or save or do something with all these pounds before they're worthless. Um, and so they figure, he, they start exploring investment in real estate before, you know, their money is, is useless. So, he gets mad at Damien for trying to give away all their money and dropping a thousand pounds in the collection bin. And, <clears throat> and so uh, the movie, though, takes a very interesting turn when you discover um, where the money came from. And that drives the, the plot for the rest of the story. So I'll, you guys want to hear it? Okay, now I'll leave it for you to... <clears throat> I'll leave it for you to... Go to you know, Netflix or Blockbuster. Keep them in business. I don't know. Um, and pick up the movie and watch it. Um, uh, so that's, that's a turn that drives the rest of the movie. But, but I want to focus on these two characters because I clearly remember the first time I watched the movie and, and the deep impression that the movie made on me um, at the end. And what I took away from this was, was that Maybe it's better to be a dreamer and wrong about the world than it is to be practical and right.
maybe Damien was a little cuckoo, <laughs> kind of living in his own world. Um, but do we want to be like, like Anthony, who's always thinking about, about the angle? He wants an angle on the situation. Or do, would we rather um, want to be more like Damien? They live in these two different, different universes, ruled by different, different laws. Is it possible to live like a Damien in the real world? Well, I don't know. But I think we can try. I think we can try. So can you do this at work? Can you, can you give others... I mean, one of the, the big things is, you know, your boss doesn't always know what you or your coworkers are doing, and it's kind of up to you to make sure that the people higher up know what you're doing. <clears throat> How do you deal with taking and giving credit for projects, good decisions made, work that's been done? <clears throat> what about covering for others, taking extra work, not being too demanding about a promotion, or a raise. Now, I'm being super practical here, and these are things that you guys need to discuss in Bible studies, and that's where, that's where you guys need to work out a lot of these things. But let me, let me think out loud about some of these ideas. Um, I think that might be a little difficult. Um, I think that you, you're going to be in, you're going to end up stuck at work for a long time. If you offer to pick up pick up work from everybody else because, because they have other things that they want to do. <clears throat> but we don't always have to live in that universe, right? And sometimes we can choose strategically to find opportunities to show that there is another logic. There's another logic. There's a gospel logic at work. Not the logic of this world. That there are times and places where gravity does pull up. And people might think, whoa, where did that come from? Can you do this in every relationship that you're in? Sacrificial love is, is expected of us. And there's no such thing as a relationship that doesn't involve sacrificial love. That's the definition of relationship. Um, but at the same time, some people can interpret this as, as being open to exploitation and abuse. And that's certainly not the case at all. And I know you have someone, uh, I know, I, I think Sean is, has, uh, has some training in, in counseling. And whenever you're involved in counseling people through relationships, you realize that, that you can't simply just say, oh, well, you can, I'm going to give you whatever you want because I love you. Um, you can't do that with your kids. You can't do that with your spouse. You can't do that with your friends. Um, but, but part of love, part of the universe that Jesus creates is saying, hey, we need to take and even create opportunities to reverse the me first logic of this world. And how can you do that? You need to do that consciously. And there are moments where we have choices and we have a decision that we can make.
And how are you going to act in light of the gospel? But ultimately, the best place to practice this, this lifestyle is actually here. Is actually the church. In a community that is committed to embodying Jesus' teaching. Jesus created that reality and we all live and share in that reality also. And this is a place where together we can, we can create a glimpse of this new reality, of this alternate universe in terms of how we live together, how we love, how we serve. Um, and so that's what I, I want to leave you with is that Jesus, um, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, what does it mean in terms of how we live? It creates this new, this new possibility of living in a new way. And I ask you to, to make choices, to make choices here, um, to make choices that work in all your relationships, to think about what it means for me to embody this the way Jesus embodied this. Let's pray. Lord, you <clears throat> know where each one of us are, and you, um, and yet you challenge us like you challenge the disciples to evaluate um, whether our perspective, whether our approach, whether our orientation is the same as yours. And we see that, that where we are is so far from where Jesus is, and yet that's where we want to be. Um, that's, we know that that's what Jesus created, and we want to be a part of that, Lord. We want to be a part of that dream. We want to be a part of that kingdom, which will be a reality. And we know that that's not how this world operates here and now, but we know that that's how it will one day. And so may our lives speak to that reality that's coming uh, and Lord, may it start with each one of us and the choices that we make. And may it start even here, in this place. So Lord, we ask you that the power of the resurrection would be at work within us. That <clears throat> just as the disciples, their whole perspective on their own lives and on Jesus changed after the res- resurrection, I ask that the same would be true of us, that you'd give us new eyes and new hearts um, to know how to live out this kingdom that you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.